You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, welcome, normal people, to our episode today, which is The Bible, Race, and White Supremacy. And our guest is Drew Hart. Uh, Drew is a professor of theology at my alma mater, Messiah College. And he's an author, he's an activist, he's got a lot of pastoral experience. They let you into Messiah? They did. Wow. That was a long time ago, though. The check cleared. (laughs) Or I was a fifth caller, one or the other. I don't know how it happened, but yeah. So (laughs) there I am. Right down the street from us, if if the Pennsylvania Turnpike is a street for two hours, you get there. So (laughs) anyway, but but, uh, Drew has a lot of experience in, in, you know, partnering with uh, community groups and churches across the country by facilitating anti-racism trainings and seminars and things like that. And uh, he's here to talk with us today about just this very important topic of the Bible, race, and white supremacy. And I heard about Drew, his book came out not too long ago, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. He came to our congregation uh, here. We attend a, a Mennonite church up in the area, and he facilitated some workshops around race and so I was really interested to have him on especially as we're recording this not too far in the distant past was the events of Charlottesville where there was uh, white supremacists and so that language has become a really hot topic in conversations around the church and some of the some of the groups that we find ourselves a part of so I thought this was a really relevant and important mm-hmm. time to talk and what about. struck me too Uh, Jared, is just how Drew defined white supremacy. It's not what we always think it is, right? Yeah. It's it's about, how how did he put it? Do you remember how he said it? Uh, I don't know. I said I remember how I said it. Yeah, how did you say it? I talked about the preference for whiteness. The preference for whiteness, right? And it's sometimes very subtle. We don't even know that it's there. It doesn't mean you're chanting and carrying torches and saying the N-word. That's mm-hmm. that's not white supremacy. So it's something that's much more subtle and much more apart and woven into our culture than we might realize. Yeah. So let's uh, get into that conversation about uh, the Bible, race, and white supremacy. We need to own in the church the degree to which white supremacy has been embedded into Christian theology and biblical hermeneutics, right? Like, I think uh, we've refused to own the depth and the degree to which that has happened. I think many Christians, it's easy to kind of look back and be like, oh yeah, slavery's bad. Um, or, you know what I mean? These kind of superficial things, the outcome of the things, never actually interrogates our actual theology itself. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. 
All right. Welcome, Drew, to the podcast here. It's good to have you. Uh, great, great to be in conversation with you. Fantastic. Good. good. So we're talking today about race and the Bible. Um, we're often or always talking about the Bible, but this topic of, of race, we want to just start with, you know, Drew, there's a lot of things that theologians um, who study all sorts of things can, can choose to, to go a deeper dive with and, and learn more about, write books about. Um, this idea of, of racism and race in the Bible, how does it connect with your story? Why are you interested in this? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me, um, I grew up in a, in a black church, um, kind of a church boy in some ways. Uh, you know, it was my family and Jesus. Um, and that was kind of the norm for, for most of my time growing up. And then I kind of got a sense of uh, call towards the end of high school and wanted to study the Bible and ended up going to a Christian college in Pennsylvania and studied. Um, I was a biblical studies major. And my time on campus, um, it, it was, I guess you could say, a life-changing experience, but not necessarily always in a good way. My, my experience there was that many of the Christians on campus, the white Christians on campus, um, one, they many of them had not had much exposure with um, students of color on campus, especially black students, especially students from the city. Um, but even more than that, I repeatedly um, encountered what I would call anti-black racism, you know, a fear of, of my body. And it was kind of strange to see how many people were threatened by me, kind of having this sense of you know, being scared and intimidated by my presence. And I would hear repeatedly students call other black students thugs and, and all those other kind of terms that go along with um, just the black stereotypes of black people being dangerous. And so for me, it was eye-opening because my expectation was that I'm going to a school where I'm going to, you know, be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is going to be an amazing experience. And I kind of really misjudged, you know, what the broader Christian community was going through and dealing with. And I, it, it caused me to struggle and ask some really hard questions about Christianity in general, but more particularly Christianity in America and the kind of white Christian um, formation that many of my peers had received. And so that sent me on a trajectory. I was a biblical studies major in college, and then I... Um, my MDiv time, I was really much more focused on those questions. And then before I knew it, I found myself in a PhD program, um, diving even deeper. I'm wanting to think about Western Christendom and the history of it and white supremacy and how that flows out of it. And so all these things um, just kind of de developed out of initially my negative experience that I had um, with many white Christian peers that really um, didn't exhibit what I thought was Jesus-shaped lives as it related to um, most of the students of color on campus. Well, so, how, did, how did you handle that during your college experience? Did you have like a community you could detox with or were you sort of on your own and just pondering and, and brooding over this in your own mind or did you have a positive outlet? How did you handle that? 
Yeah, so it was a few things. Um, I, I often say that my first two years on campus, it was more probably just a kind of coping mechanism. I'd make a lot of like racial jokes that were like stupid. Um, you know, my big black fridge and I don't know, nothing really substantial, right. you know, um, but it was just my way of trying to make sense of being a black body in a place that uh, there were so few um, of us there. Um, but because I was a Bible major, one of the great things about um, my program was that, you know, we asked really tough questions in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I saw in the classroom um, just a very different way of looking and reading scripture than I had before that forced me to think like what I'm seeing and out um, in the everyday, you know, experiences and encounters on campus and what I'm learning in the classroom seem to be very different. If, if God really is this kind of justice oriented God and the God that brings Jews and Gentiles together, then why is this really all this mess existing as it is? And so I, that was one resource was just being a Bible major. Um, but even more than that, I mean, I began to cling more and more to other students of color on campus in a way that I hadn't really relied on them. Um, prior to that. And and so many of the uh, students of color be, just became a family and a safe uh, haven um, to kind of lean on when um, things got really challenging. Hmm. Before we, you know, we talk about the race, uh, race in the Bible, let's just hang out with race for a minute, because you've already used a lot of concepts. I think we could um, unpack and talk a little more about that, that you can maybe help define for us maybe further. So some of the things I'm thinking about white supremacy, anti-black racism, which connect you connected to fear in some ways talking about uh, black body and, and that experience. Can you maybe just take some of those concepts and, and tie it to race and society and help us get a fuller picture of what we're uh, talking about for those of us who are, aren't people of color, maybe haven't experienced or maybe can't really grasp. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, white supremacy, I, I, that's certainly a term that needs to be unpacked, especially right now, because it's a term that's being used quite a lot, both mainstream and in uh, everyday conversations um, because of some of the current events. Um, but, but one of the mistakes that we make when we talk about white supremacy, I think, is that we think that it only applies to folks who are participants in the KKK and neo-Nazis and, you know, some of that overt public stuff, you know, we think of white supremacy and we think of burning crosses and calling, you know, black folk the N-word and all that stuff and footage from the 1950s and 60s. Um, but, but if we really understand white supremacy, um, just in terms of the actual meaning of it, really what it's about is racial hierarchy, right? That's another way that we could use a different word, racial hierarchy. And all that means is that, um, that the way that race, um, has been constructed, like race itself is a social construction, like biologically, um, there aren't races as people imagine. It's ways that we've kind of construed humanity. Um, But it's not just a neutral construing of different groups. It's it's all designed to create a hierarchy to say who is better, more superior, more intelligent, smarter, beautiful, normative, any of those kind of categories. And so uh, white supremacy is really about that racial hierarchy that Again, um, we can see going back to like colonialism, you know, think about um, Christopher Columbus, right? As he comes over into the, to America, to the Americas, he's, um, he's judging up, you know, his, his superiority in relationship to the indigenous communities that lived here first in America. 
Uh, when when um, they brought um, Africans over, they deemed them to be at the bottom of all human races, right? And so they actually, you can see Immanuel Kant and all these supposedly great Enlightenment thinkers, um, many of them had like very clear um, scales of hierarchy in terms of uh, who was more superior and who was least superior. And always white Europeans were always at the top and black Africans were always at the bottom. And so um, white supremacy really is about that idea. It's an ideology that claims that Europeans are more superior than everybody else around the world. Um, so it's important to understand that, that it's not just then about um, uh -huh. Nazis, but anyway, even in subtle ways, um, uh, white supremacy can show up. And I'll give one uh, easy example that kind of can make it plain. So in the 1940s, um, there was something called the uh, Clark Doll experiments in which they had children, um, uh, sociologists took one child at a time, either black or white, and they would sit a white doll and a black doll in front of them, and they'd ask them a series of questions. Which doll is the uh, pretty doll? Which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? And you, know, you can imagine that most of the white children in the 1940s gave all positive attributes to the white dolls and negative attributes to the black dolls. Um, but what was more shocking for uh, the researchers was the response of the black children. They actually also uh, were more inclined to give positive attributes to the white doll and negative attributes to the black doll. Even though the dolls, other than the color of the doll, they looked identical, right? Um, and so they saw the white doll as more beautiful and more intelligent and smart um, and, and good and also <coughs> the black dolls is bad and ugly. So that's one of the kind of simple ways in which white supremacy had synced the, even just children's minds. And it, it shaped how they saw the world and others. Um, and so most of those kids, I'm sure, weren't a part of the KKK, um, but they had internalized these socialized ideas that were rampant in American society. And uh, much later now in the 21st century, that same uh, experiment has been reduplicated with even more nuance and different shades and all kinds of stuff. And they're finding a lot of the same results is that um, all children, especially white, but all children are inclined to internalize this idea of white supremacy. And also, on the other hand, anti-blackness. That's what I meant when I said anti-blackness. This idea that um, not only is there a racial hierarchy, but that one of the most permanent functions and features of our racial hierarchy hierarchical way of thinking is that blackness is bad. And so, um, so black people have always been deemed especially bad, negative, dangerous, thugs, criminals, all these kind of terms um, that have kind of morphed over time um, to describe um, African-American people. Hopefully that's helpful. And so then my bodily experience is just me encountering the significance of that in even Christian campuses. So, um, what I hear you saying is white supremacy is really a preference for whiteness and the scale is really, is that, is that explicit kind of on the one side or is it subconscious on the other side so that even black children can have these elements of white supremacy, meaning a preference for whiteness without right. ever having that be, uh, being even aware of that. Which then it's so if, and if that's the case, which I think evidence shows that it is, then we can't, it's too simple to just scapegoat neo-Nazis and KKK and say, mm -hmm. oh, those bad white supremacists, because it permeates our whole entire society in ways that even many black people aren't necessarily aware sometimes of the ways that we've internalized it. And so it's something that all of us need to take seriously and begin to kind of commit to, uh, you know, 
intentionally working on and undoing in our minds. Yeah, and, and maybe say within that, you talked about the anti-black racism and you connected it with fear, which I think strikes a chord with me because when I was trying to understand a lot of this idea of white supremacy or racism systemically, it didn't really click for me. I didn't understand it for a long time until uh, for whatever reason I was confronted with the, the idea, maybe I was finally self-aware enough to know that in certain places, uh, for instance, I was in Phoenix and would take public transportation to uh, teach at a university, and I found myself sitting by uh, a lot of people of color. And when I was sitting still and was really aware and open to even asking the question, I found out what was really happening was I was afraid. Yeah. And so it wasn't this, it wasn't a negative feeling like uh, antagonism. It wasn't, it was just a fear. So can you say why that was just so profound of a revelation to me sitting on that train thinking, oh, I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? Because yeah. I'm sitting next to a black person. That's, that's what systemic racism is. Oh, I never had considered that before. So just can you say more about that as a, as a phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, and this is one of the kind of, I mean, to really understand it, I mean, in some ways we have to really understand the history um, in our country that, so, I mean, obviously, like, I think we can underplay how much slavery still shapes um, the aftermath of slavery still shapes our social interactions today. Uh, during slave times, you know, black people were believed to be designed to be slaves for white people. Um, after slavery ended, um, one of the biggest problems was that now black people are roaming free and are not in their right place. And especially, obviously, that rhetoric became particularly strong in the South, right? Mm -hmm. We need to restore the social order, put people back in the right place. And what did that look like? This is post-slavery. We see the emergence of the convict leasing systems, right, where hundreds and thousands and thousands of black people are basically put in a neo-form of slavery through the convict leasing system for things like not getting permission to change jobs or loitering or whistling at a white woman, right? All these things happen. There's also the sharecropping system, which is also a neo-form of slavery, again, where people are working the very same lands that their poor parents worked for as slaves. Now they're doing it and basically stuck in a cycle where they can't get out of it and where white people can change the terms of the agreements that they're always in debt um, year after year. Um, and so we see all these different peonage systems where the whole goal was to put, the, put black people back under the control of white people. And in some ways, what, what we you see historically is that a free black body is a dangerous black body. Um, the most dangerous, the people who were most likely to get lynched right, were people who expressed their freedom in a society that said that they weren't designed to be free. And I'd say that that, though maybe not so overt, is still subtly shaping how people gaze at black bodies. That black body, we've been taught, all of us, black people included, have been socialized by hundreds of years of racial inertia to see black people as dangerous. Um, and so it's not uncommon for people to come across another black person and maybe, you know, they might have personal black friends that they love. And yet in this encounter with a stranger, have this, uh, this instinct of fear because they've, it's deeply ingrained in, in our American psyche um, to fear free black bodies. 
um, they're dangerous, right? That's the rhetoric. And, and so even the language of thug, which gets used now, is just a new form of communicating those same old ideologies. It's mutated, it's upgraded its software to, you know, 3.0 or whatever, but it's still the same basic, um, has the same roots going all the way back. To it's the a racial slur. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, you know, Drew, let's, let's think about uh, maybe going in a, um, a direction of how to address the problem and and you know assuming that white supremacy the way you define it is probably a part of our churches more than we realize yeah yeah and there are many well-meaning people who would never think of themselves as racist or white supremacist but probably are and just in your experience let me ask you this does the bible help or hurt or both yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yes is my answer, right? So, oh, God. I mean, it, it helps and it hurts. And it's, answer there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, it's been used, right, to reinforce um, racism and it's been used to, to resist it and to liberate people from it. And so 
um, it's one of those hard things that we don't always like to acknowledge that um, that it has the capacity to kill and destroy and it has the capacity to bring life and to heal. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, people have argued for a very long time, and it, it was a breaking point during the Civil War with Christians in the North and South. You can use the Bible to support both sides. Yeah. If you know what, what passages to go to. Uh, but how, what can we do? I mean, it's more than just citing some Bible verses, right? How, how, how can the Christian faith, I guess, which is more than just citing Bible verses, but it's theology, it's hermeneutics, it's contextualism. You know, how, 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 can, we, how can we help this? You know, I, 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 if that's even the right word. How can we be agents of healing? and yeah. change in the church, and, and, and how might the Bible be helpful? How might a particular use of the Bible be helpful to move us in that direction? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would say um, one of the things that I think um, needs to be taken seriously is, is let's pay attention to the particular traditions that have been um, especially liberative and peaceful and transformative in the midst of these challenges, right? And so, so there's no question that, but as you mentioned, you know, um, you can pick any verse you want to and kind of, you know, stack them in the right order and make your case. Um, but there are particular ways that commu- certain communities have read scripture in a way that has been, it has been life-giving, that has been transformative, has been restorative. So I make the case that, you know, that particularly, I mean, I'm looking, I think about like the black church, I think about Anabaptists, I think about many uh, Christian communities that have emerged from the underside of white supremacy and Christendom um, that have gained particular hermeneutics and ways of reading scripture together that are life-giving. And so we ought to, as Christians, all of us be paying a special attention to these communities that, um, that have different ways of approaching the texts um, that, that don't lead to more oppression and domination and killing of others. Um, so that would be my starting point was to, to just suggest who are, the, who, who are the Christian communities that have helped salvage Western Christianity from itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we sit in, in circles and in conversation with them around the biblical narrative and begin to um, study and to read these texts anew, these sacred texts anew, and, and see wh- which texts um, are the, you know, we talk about the canon within the canon. What are those particular texts that are really important for different traditions? What are those texts and how are people interpreting them? And I think that that process for all Christians is really meaningful, right? That, that learning, you know, so I teach an African-American theology course now at, at uh, Messiah College, and, um, you know, as much as I love, you know, having as many African-American students as possible in my class, I also believe deeply that this, this class is meaningful for all students um, and that will enrich all of them to take seriously both the theology and the ways of reading scripture that have emerged over time by mm-hmm. black students um, in the face of white supremacy. Well, I'm just picking up, Drew, on what you just mentioned is there a favorite text or narrative or story that maybe you might use in classes to help people see things from, let's say, a non-dominant culture perspective? 
something to really push people to see, listen, look, listen, look at what the Bible is doing here and how can we apply this to our day and age? Are there any narratives or stories or passages that you find to be more helpful than others? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I think that there's there's tons of them, right? Uh, I think the, um, for me, sometimes, even as I'll say, scripture is used, can be used in all different ways. Sometimes I have to like remind myself of that because it seems so obvious. Yeah. But for me, it seems such, the Bible seems like such a prophetic and liberative text. Um, but I do know, and I'm very aware of the texts that have been used otherwise. But, but uh, to answer your question, I think... Um, uh, simple stories like, you know, Jesus, um, when, when, uh, who's it? Uh, Mama Zebedee, right? Comes with James and John, <laughs> Jesus, right? You know, who wipes the spit off their face and, and, um, and tries to make this, you know, deal with Jesus. Um, and what's interesting is that after, you know, the disciples, they get angry at, you know, and that they, I guess maybe we're not on the end. I don't know. But, um, but they, Jesus kind of responds to them by saying that the Gentiles lord it over you, right? So that's what they do. They lord it over you. And so like even that language, like for, for um, many of my students don't even think about the fact that, that the Gentiles in that case are these Romans that are oppressing them, that are occupying their lands, right? And so all of a sudden you see Jesus naming and unveiling the, not only the hierarchy, but the power dynamics in play, and then saying it's not so among you, that that's not how we live life, right? Except there's this kind of non-loading over others way of life that Jesus is kind of pointing them to. I mean, mm -hmm. I think like, that's just one small example of, of just reading these texts and thinking about ways that they kind of undermine and unsettle the kind of white supremacist domination that kind of has gone on in our land for so long. Well, Drew... I want to go back to something you said earlier about a canon within a canon. Uh, first of all, because I, I, I wonder if a lot of our listeners would even know what you mean by that, but I also would like to hear more of what you've experienced as you've heard students and others, as you, um, we were talking earlier, Drew, that you came to our congregation or something that we sponsored to talk about race on a few occasions at a workshop. And uh, you know, through those experiences, what are those canons within it? I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on what texts, so maybe explain what you mean by canon within a canon, but what texts do you find different perspectives focusing on? So those people that you tend to think are resistant to admitting that maybe this thing of white supremacy exists, do they tend to focus on a certain number of texts and, and more the liberative or uh, the people who are who are willing to recognize it, do they focus on a certain set of texts? What are you observing? Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I think sometimes I feel like many folks actually have never actually read the Bible. Um, so there are there are, but there are stories and ideas and verses that I think kind of get privileged for a lot of folks. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, this is maybe a little crude, but, you know, John 3.16 is in everybody's head, right? And and I think people in general think they like the Gospel of John. Um, and I think um, people will quickly highlight the violence and judgment of God in the Old Testament. And so there's certain texts that I think for many American Christians, um, at least certain stories, biblical stories, um, begin to emerge as being privileged as um, ways of um, talking and, and lenses through which we can see God um, um, privileged texts that 
that define what Christianity is about for them. Um, that define, you know, escaping this evil world, mm-hmm. worrying about, you know, the creation and the people that are within it. I mean, if, uh, yeah. for conservative, as you know, Drew, for, for conservative Christians, escapism is almost what the gospel's about. Right. And so you don't have a lot of room for what people also call social action. In fact, that's what the liberals do. That's what the liberals do. So you're not going to have a lot of time, you know, with a mentality like that to sort of discuss this issue, which actually affects people. And, And maybe one of the ways forward, which I guess you implied before, but is having people with different skin color interact with each other and get to know each other. So this is a humanized issue, not just an abstract thing out there. Right. Right, absolutely. Um, and so I would say, like, on the other end, then, so some of the texts, I mean, like, historically, um, you know, Black church tradition has emphasized the Exodus narrative. Um, and so the idea of, you know, God being a liberator of the oppressed has been a huge theme that you can see through most of um, the spirituals and a lot of the Black church tradition. Um, certainly not without problems also, as you know, I, I know many of our Native American brothers and sisters will, you know, also point out some of the challenges of focusing on that text and, and what that means for them if they are Canaan, if they identify with, with Canaan and, and the conquest into Canaan. Um, but nonetheless, I think, um, you know, what are these key texts along the way? And I think, you know, for most um, Christians, you know, even just taking seriously the life and teachings of Jesus, right? Not just um, Jesus is my savior. And once there, as you mentioned, you know, just help me escape this world. Um, and that we want to actually take seriously his teachings and his life um, and think about how that, um, that shapes us in a very different kind of way. Cause I would argue that race is a, it, it's a way, it's a kind of formation. It's a kind of discipleship. And so if, our Christian discipleship is distorted, then we need to even that much more take seriously um, trying to be shaped by Jesus even more significantly um, in our Christian traditions. And so I think that that it's interesting, like for me, I've studied not only African-American theology and black theology, um, but also like Anabaptist theology. Some of this, even though the emphases are different um, in some ways, there's a lot of similar moves, right? This kind of turn towards the particularity of Jesus is one of the similarities that we see between these two traditions. Um, even if one is focusing more on the peace of Christ and the other, the liberation of Christ, they're both making a similar turn to kind of push against the abstract Jesus that's being utilized to justify oppression. They're kind of turning towards actually going back to the, to the story of Jesus and seeing that as more liberative. Well, and what I'm hearing, and maybe this is even a question slash comment for Pete here and for you, but what I'm hearing is there's something too, because I'm thinking of all my kind of progressive friends and a lot of my conservative friends who have self-identified that way. There does seem to be this fundamental difference, and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but in general, there's a way we read the Bible in which the goal is to get you to heaven. So there's this abstract Jesus with this uh, heavenly perspective and really the goal, all that, you know, even the Exodus narrative is really metaphor or a type or symbol of the ultimate uh, Exodus, which is a spiritual Exodus. And then there's this other tradition that's a little more earthy or that when Jesus talks about 
blessed are the poor. It's not the, I think it's the Luke version uh, where it's blessed are the poor and the Matthew version, the blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So we, is it really the poor, like physically here on earth poor? And I think that's important because that seems to be the lens, like the first lens through which we read it, because it's all fine and good to say, let's follow Jesus. But which Jesus are we following? Are we following the one that's talking abstractly and is trying to get your soul into heaven? Are we talking about the Jesus that's saying the same words, but maybe is talking about liberation here and now and what we do to unchain the, the, those in prison and to liberate the oppressed here and now? So do you, is that fair assessment? And again, I would ask both of you, I think I'm overgeneralizing, but it feels like until we get to that difference, we can equivocate. We can talk about Jesus we kind of have to ask which Jesus, or we can talk about the Exodus, but which Exodus? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question that, uh, I mean, I, I always think of Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, who, who right from the get-go, they want to make plain that there are uh, very different Jesuses that are being followed, right? And so, for Frederick Douglass, it's in his um, slave narrative at the end in his appendix, he says, that it, there's no further distinction or difference. Like they're so far apart, the Christianity of this land versus the Christianity of Christ, the true Christianity of Christ. Um, and so for him, he wants to make a differentiation that, that, um, that just because someone is calling themselves a Christian doesn't mean that it's the true Christ. Now, obviously to claim the true Christ is to make a, a particular claim um, that, you know, I guess one can't <laughs> prove, but, but certainly um, as a matter of faith, we can certainly um, stand on that. And I think that, um, that the difference between the uh, the escapism of, you know, let me say my prayer, let me go to heaven, and that's all that matters, and everybody else can go to hell, um, versus the kind of actually taking seriously that Jesus, you know, was it Luke 4, 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blinds, let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, if Jesus really means that, then that's a very different kind of posture um, towards um, others um, and to, towards people and, and, and the way that we engage every day. It, I mean, it strikes me too, Drew, that maybe another way of putting this is that, you know, we all have our theological lenses through which we look at things like day-to-day social issues that affect us. And maybe, you know, part of the power of things like what has happened recently, at least when we're recording this in Charlottesville, is to force us to reimagine our theologies. That how much our own thinking, I mean, none of us has God in our hip pocket. And, you know, we all create God in our own image. We really do. (laughs) I know I do. Um, But we need to be reminded sometimes that those lenses can actually distort our understanding of the real thing. And maybe that's part of what we're talking about here. You know, we have Christians who see things in certain ways because of how they've been taught and how they've been conditioned, and they highlight certain passages and minimize others, or they you know, choose an interpretation of the Exodus story that is maybe more abstract and less liberative because that's how they've been taught. And and that will affect how they deal with people who look different than they do. That's a big task. You know, we're talking about theological re-education. 
Yeah, no, it's very, as you were talking, it made me think of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote when he was in prison. He says something to the effect of like, everything you might expect of God, God has nothing to do with that. And then he goes on to say like, you know, we need to immerse ourselves slowly again and again into the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection, right? So this idea that we all have these projections of God that we make. Mm-hmm. So it's it, there really is a different kind of formation that we need to gen- enter into and that's going to continually and slowly and patiently undo those filters, right? Um, and so what are those practices? That we and being practice? self-critical, which is hard to do. We have to be self-critical. And there's nothing to push us towards self, healthy self-criticism, not a loathing, but a healthy self-criticism. I think there's nothing to push us towards that better than life. Stuff that happens that we see and that makes us think, my goodness gracious, I sort of agree with those bad guys over there. What's wrong with me? What, what, what am I thinking about? Where is my head right now? And, and boy, that takes a lot of time, I imagine. Yeah. It's been taking a long time. It's been taking hundreds of years in our country. Well, what else do you have for us, Drew? Have we solved this problem? I don't think so. No, I mean, so, <laughs> well, let's, I'll just go back and, I mean, I think that taking seriously, as we, we've already been talking about, um, Christian discipleship. Um, so, it, or maybe go back a step before that and say, we need to own in the church the, deg- the degree to which white supremacy has been embedded into Christian theology and biblical hermeneutics, right? Like, I think uh, we've refused to own the depth and the degree to which that has happened. I think many Christians, it's easy to kind of look back and be like, oh yeah, slavery's bad. Um, Or, you know I mean? These kind of superficial things, the outcome of the things never actually interrogates our actual theology itself and say there might be something that has happened to our theology that could not only accommodate doing those kind of things, um, but in many ways, bolstered um, that work, right? That that it was the church that often, uh, sometimes we act like the church was kind of drug into like slavery and white supremacy. No, we often were leading the way. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, there just needs to be more honesty in, um, in, in owning that and in, in acknowledging that and lamenting these realities. And then from that, I think it creates a space where we can kind of grope our way towards something more faithful. Reclaiming the prophetic voice of the church to critique culture rather than just go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we need to engage in different practices. We need to um, learn. I I often, I believe that when when we hear Jesus talk about the first is last and the last is first, I believe that, um, that there's times in which many Christians that have been kind of feeling like they've always been able to just lead the way and be the primary voices that they need to maybe sit at the feet of those who've been most oppressed, marginalized, or most vulnerable in the society, right? Those who are least last and lost in our society, that maybe that those are some of the voices that can help our church um, rediscover Jesus anew in a really meaningful way. Excellent. Well, Drew, we're coming to the end of our time here, but you mentioned one last thing, you, you mentioned taking our past seriously, doing the grieving, the repenting, the lamenting of that, um, taking responsibility for that. But what would be one thing that uh, 
you would say that we can do people, uh, maybe people of color or not, that we can do as we're moving. What, what's something proactive that we can we can be doing? What advice would you give us? Yeah, um, let me see. I mean, I mean, on the most easiest basic level is is start you know reading from different authors and 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 learning from different theological sources, right? Who are the kind of people that we're kind of going to, to, to learn? So if um, there's something uh, distorted about our Christian traditions that allow for accommodation with white supremacy, then, then why don't we take some time to learn from those voices that have been marginalized and, and ignored and dismissed in the theological tradition that have actually for 400 years been resisting all these things, right? Um, while most white Christians were uh, uh, going along with it for the past 400 years, only after the fact do Christians say, oh, yeah, that was bad. Well, black Christians, for example, have been for the, all 400 years, the majority of black Christians knew that there was something terribly wrong with Christianity. So maybe there's some a time in which we might want to um, take those voices and, and, and people um, seriously and learn from them. And so I encourage people to read widely, read black and womanist theologians and um, biblical scholars and um, as well as Native American and other um, underrepresented uh, groups. Um, just take the time to begin to read the Bible differently in view of others. And that's, I mean, books are, that actually is a very safe, easy thing to do. It doesn't necessarily have to disrupt your life, at least not initially. Now, if you're actually going to try to be obedient as you hear from God, then, then that should um, unsettle and disrupt your life. <laughs> but, I, but I believe that that's a simple starting point. Um, but even more than that, I think that, um, you know, we've got to begin to live differently um, in terms of our daily practice. So, you know, most, most people live, they, you know, the average white person goes to all white church, live in all white neighborhoods, and the kids all white schools, um, interacts mostly with all white social networks. Um, at what point are we going to um, live into our nonconformity as Christians and not be patterned by the racial patterns of our society, right? And decide that I'm going to um, put my body along certain bodies um, that I'm not supposed to and enter into certain spaces and dwell there that I'm told are not my spaces. Um, and what ways am I going to begin to have new ways, intentionally develop new ways of seeing others, right? I think all these things actually part should be part of our Christian discipleship and it's, it needs to be embodied and lived out and fleshed in our everyday lives. What we do Monday through Saturday um, actually matters. Our social relationships actually matter and our willingness to live in solidarity and struggle with those who are struggling for justice. It actually is a part of discipleship. As well. Good, good advice, Drew. Thank you for that. And, and as we head out, maybe you can, why don't you uh, let people know what, what projects do you have out are you working on any new projects and, and maybe where people can find you online if they want to learn more about the work you do? Yeah. Um, well, first I would just uh, note my, I have a book called Trouble Vaccine, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, which is extremely helpful for just kind of entering into these kind of conversations and breaking down even further um, what that means for us as the church. Um, you can find me, I blog at The Christian Century. I have my blog is called Taking Jesus Seriously. Um, though it's not always active, um, but on and off. Um, a more active space that you can find me at is on Twitter. Um, Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T. You can find me there. 
um, Facebook and all other places. And I'm often um, traveling quite a bit around the country speaking. And so um, just to track, I might be in a town or city nearby. Great. Well, thanks again, Drew, for uh, coming on and talking to us about this important topic and explaining some of these concepts to us. It's really helpful. It's good to have you on. Yes, thank you, Drew. We learned much. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciated it. Well, folks, thanks again for listening to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. And uh, we found our conversation with Drew Hart to be just wonderful. Uh, make sure you uh, find Drew on, um, on Twitter at Drew Hart. That's D-R-U-H-A-R-T. And also make sure you get a, if you get a chance to look at his book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, a very important and highly praised book about obviously a very, very important topic. Uh, as usual, you can reach Jared and me on Facebook and on Twitter and on um, my website, The Bible for Normal People. There you can see uh, my speaking schedule. You can book me if you'd like and just see the books that I'm working on and also the conversations that we're having there. And we want to highlight today the community that we would invite you to be a part of. We have a Slack community, which is an app basically allowing you to message back and forth with a group of people around topics of the Bible, what it is and how we read it. And that's part of what we're doing on Patreon. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, scroll through the rewards and for $5 a month, you can have access to this a growing community of people who uh, have these conversations on a regular basis. Pete and I will drop in on occasion for some helpful and if not uh, sarcastic Or comments. just belch for like a half an hour and then go away. Yeah, well, it's not audio. <laughs> you're going to type it out. Shoot. You're going yeah, yeah. to type out your belching? That's commitment. I didn't know that. That's commitment. That changes everything. <laughs> what do I do now? Oh, no. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk to you guys next time.